friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my co-hostesses, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire, to discuss a tragic story out of D.C., um, having to do with late-term abortion. It's a sad story. I was At the end of Holy Week, we have Easter, but there is Good Friday to get through, the Passion of Our Lord. And you know, on the way to resurrection, there is death, and there is sin, and there is sadness. So maybe it's not. It, I, I think it is an appropriate story. I was thinking, um, I've been thinking this week of how important it is to to focus on what's happening in the Ukraine, the, the terrible toll of human suffering, of, of panic, of despair even, that must be going on in the hearts and the minds of the people who are losing their family members and seeing their homes blown up and their country destroyed, those who have fled. It might help us to, when, when we make our sacrifices and our penance and our fasting, to offer it up, especially for the people of Ukraine who are giving us a real example of bravery in the face of the terrible aggression of, of the Russian government. As we are in the midst of war with the Ukraine, we've asked Archbishop Boris Gudziak, who is the Ukrainian Catholic Archbishop uh, of Philadelphia, he will give us the latest in the situation there and his own personal reflections on how it affects people of faith in the Ukraine and, and what we can expect if Russia does in fact succeed. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Boris. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the great ministry that you uh, develop and, and serve um, and thank you for bringing the plight of the people of Ukraine and the church in Ukraine to the attention of your audience. Well, you know, we can only imagine what you must be feeling and other, other Ukrainians are living outside Ukraine with family members there because we are watching um, these terrible videos, these terrible images of, you know, what's the biggest land war in Europe since World War II and uh, people being killed right and left, many more hundreds, I think, than we know of. I think the, the casualties are probably much higher than are being reported. Just from watching the terrible effect of the of the shelling and the bombing, and um, what's it like from your perspective watching this horrible experience happening to your countrymen? It's a very strange thing. It's shocking. It's senseless. Uh, it's surreal. Um, I was in Ukraine in the first half of February uh, as the tension was really rising. Uh, I went in as you know American diplomats began leaving. Uh, at the beginning of the month. And then by the time I was leaving, uh, you know, just about all diplomats were leaving from from Kiev, from most countries, and Americans were, were told leave immediately. I left because I had to be in Rome for meetings scheduled months ago at the Oriental Congregation and, and uh, an encounter with the Holy Father. Uh, but uh, you know you couldn't you could it couldn't believe it even though you knew uh, that the country on three sides like a horseshoe is surrounded by uh, two hundred thousand troops and we Ukrainians have you know three hundred and fifty years of uh, history of of Russian occupation uh, Russian you know military violence uh, even genocidal waves. So, you know, we don't doubt that it's possible. And, you know, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, every time there's a Russian occupation on a part of the country where the Ukrainian Church is serving, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church gets liquidated. 
as a visible structure. It might take a year or two. It might take, a, you know, 10 years or, or 20. But sooner or later, when we are on land under Russian control, uh, we're eliminated. You and said- so there's, there's no naivete mm-hmm. about this. But it still is unbelievable in the 21st century. You know, this is one of the first cases, really, where a war is fully wired. You know, everybody's kind of seeing it globally instantly. Um, And this is making a big difference. Uh, I think it, you know, it, it helps the victim when the evil and brutal deeds of of the invader are are so quickly shown and seen uh, by people throughout the world. Uh, Your Excellency, you said the word senseless referring to this war, and I maybe this is a very big question and you can't answer it in a minute or two, but can you attempt to make sense of this for our listeners? Because many of us are s- sitting over here in the West without that historical perspective that you have, an understanding of the interactions sure. between Ukraine and Russia over the centuries. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of why exactly is Putin advancing on the Ukraine? Yeah, uh, it's the most important question, you know, for people who want to understand um, what's going on. And uh it's only slowly that uh, the media is getting to the heart of the problem. Most media for months and many, you know, experts, uh, they kind of parrot Putin's line Mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart and we were humiliated. And then, you know, NATO received the former Soviet satellite countries into membership and we're threatened by NATO in the United States. And, uh, you know, so we have to invade Ukraine. Uh, and somewhere, you know, the question is, okay, first of all, NATO is a defensive alliance. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not threatening Russia. Mm-hmm. Ukraine has never invaded Russia. Um, in, in the... The real reason is there's really two main reasons. One which is often stated by the media, and that is that there's nostalgia for empire. Putin said 15 years ago that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in, in the 20th century. And he wants to rebuild an empire, his empire. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the sin of Adam. You know, Adam grabs for something, the, you know, the fruit, mm-hmm. the forbidden fruit, and he wants to appropriate it. That's a basic human sin. Human nature grabs for itself, whereas God's gesture is an open hand of giving, mm-hmm. sharing the Father to the Son in the Holy Spirit. And we're created to be givers, and we're created to be open and generous and be in good relationship. And sin is grabbing things for yourself, mm-hmm. whether they're physical or, you know, moral or whatever. Uh, it's human nature kind of turning in on itself. It's the ego turning in on itself instead of being in, in communion. So, you know, the, the, worst, the worst case scenario is when despots, you know, want more, more, and more. I mean, there's 11 time zones in Russia. How much more do you need? Uh, but, you know, that sin, when somebody makes a, a contract with the devil, you, you, lose, you lose all moral perspective. And Putin, as a young man, became a KGB agent. That was a moral sellout. The KGB was a cynical, repressive organization that, you know, otherwise normal people... In, in the Soviet Union feared. You didn't want to talk to anybody that, you know, was in the KGB, who, you know, whose wife worked in the KGB or husband worked in the KGB. That was, it was like the Gestapo. You know, mm-hmm. these are people that are dangerous and, and they're responsible for genocides uh, over, you know, the decades of the Soviet Union. And this is what Putin joined. So you sell your soul. It's mm-hmm. a Faustian thing. You're, you're now going to do what you're told, and that might include killing people. And that, that, uh, that 
ultimate, uh, or maybe it's not the ultimate decision, because I hope he, I pray for his conversion, but that decision is there, and he reiterates it. He, he, you know, he glorifies uh, the KGB and the Federal uh, Security Bureau, the FSB. Uh, it's, you know, Russian version. Uh, he tries to whitewash uh, the history of the Soviet Union and its, its genocides. And so he wants to recreate it. But really, the most important reason why he's attacking specifically Ukraine is that because Ukraine is a big country, Apparently now they say there's about 44 million people. And 30 years ago, it had 20, 52 million people. Um, and Ukraine has developed, come out of the Soviet Union, you know, 30 and a half years ago uh, as a democracy. It elects presidents. There have been six presidents in, in, in um, 30 years. And Russia, no president loses an election, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's got freedom of the press. In Russia, journalists are killed, like Anna Politkovskaya, one mm -hmm. famous case. Uh, there's, you know, parties win elections, lose elections, have majority, lose majorities. In Russia, there's no opposition. Uh, in opposition, those who are really opposition uh, politicians can be killed. They can be shot in the, in the center of Moscow, demonstratively. They can be poisoned. They can, uh, you know, be opposition people can be killed by r radioactive stuff that only a few countries produce. He's not even hiding. Putin isn't even hiding the fact that he's assassinating these people in London or, you know, in other places, other countries or within his country. And in Ukraine, you know, there's freedom of a religion. There's about 100 denominations and everybody, you know, is on the same playing field. Not like the Russian Orthodox Church, which is wedded to the state. Um, and, you know, there's toleration. I mean, seven, by 70 percent Ukraine, Ukrainians elected a Jewish man as president. Mm -hmm. uh, Zelensky, Jewish background. You've got Muslim Tatars. In Crimea, that's the native population of Crimea who were deported in, in the 40s to uh, Siberia. And Ukraine welcomed them back. And these Muslim Tatars are great Ukrainian patriots. They're getting Your Excellency, you, you made a point earlier about how this is sort of the first time a conflict like this is playing out in, in live time. And that's been the thing I've been struck by to see the way the role that social media has played and you know you mentioned the the prime minister who's um, you know basically been posting videos to social media of himself in fighting in the streets and you know one thing that I've been struck by is uh, the way so many of these different faith leaders you know I just saw the um, like the chief rabbi, you know, said, I'm going to stay here for the Jews who can't flee. And, and so many priests, um, posting pictures of people worshiping underground. And, you know, what is your sense of, you know, the morale of, of the faithful, both, you know, those who are in communion with the Catholic church and, and, and the various other, you know, religious groups that, um, you undoubtedly have, uh, relationships with what is their, what is their morale and what's, you know, the, the perspective of, of the Christians who are, and, and the other faith groups who are there and sort of left behind or trapped or, or, or are purposefully staying for one reason or another. Many people are staying in place. Uh, uh, his Beatitude, Svetoslav Shuchuk, the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, he's in Kyiv, he's moving around because the place of his residence is, is dangerous. And I know other bishops that are on the move, kind of looking for safe houses uh, because of the, the danger. Um, but uh, uh, there's the whole range of possible human experiences. You know, when bombs are falling, you can't but be afraid you can't mm -hmm, but uh, be apprehensive and so you know many refugees are moving there's a half a million people that have left the country and by some estimates there might be as many as seven million refugees this is going to be the biggest refugee crisis of europe and you know since world war ii um but others are staying uh uh 
clergy are going down into the you know these bunkers and and into the met, metro the subways where people are huddling and they're um you know praying with the people uh just two hours ago i was talking with his beatitude Svetoslav, and all of a sudden said sorry i gotta go because the sirens on you know we have to run into the you know to the basement where, where he was located um i talked to another bishop uh 10 minutes before we spoke uh, in Kharkiv, which is being bombarded. And he said uh, today he had to move because his, his, where he lives was on the side of the city, which is being hit by all kinds of rocket fire. So uh, people are staying. Uh, 100,000 volunteers have, have joined the territorial defense units in each town and city. Uh, citizens are, uh, joining these units, the, the 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 government is arming them and and they're defending their neighborhoods. Uh, so whether it's spiritually, morally, or militarily, you know the country is showing incredible uh, resistance. Nobody expected it, and most of all, Putin didn't expect it. What do you think, Archbishop, about the response of the West? Um, maybe you can tell us what you think of the response from the Vatican, but then also countries in the West like the United States and and other Europe and European countries. Well, uh, the U.S. response and that of Western Europe has been slow, uh, and I mean slow because, you know, the writing was on the walls eight years ago when Putin uh, invaded uh, Ukraine on two sides and annexed part of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, there were sanctions, these were slaps on the wrist, and Putin saw the West and the U.S. as weak. And so he started building up his army, and this this uh, this invasion, massive invasion, comprehensive invasion, has been long in planning. Um, and so uh, um, the uh, response was weak and slow. It's much better now, but it needs to be stronger. It's only, you know, the world is kind of waking up to war in Ukraine, which has been going on for eight years. Uh, it's it's now, you know, becoming catastrophic, uh, but it was very bad. There were two million uh, refugees from from that eastern front and from Crimea over these last eight years. I mean, Ukrainians have been suffering in a tremendous way. The, the currency lost two-thirds of its value in 2014. People lost two-thirds of the value of their salaries and of their savings. <laughs> so uh, Ukrainians think that the West has, you know, often abandoned them. And they're, they're saying, listen, we're dying. We're fighting for what will be a war that will extend into Europe. Why don't you at least help us? If you're, you know, if, if you can't help us, you know, with your forces, help us with instruments. Your Excellency, there's, you know, continued talk of, you know, there'll be dialogue between Putin and Zelensky. And but I think also a sense of, you know, um, the uh, each side is not going to see, you know, eye to eye with the other. Do you see any? prospect for for peace or do you see any sort of outcome where this could resolve without cascading into a a larger scale european conflict engulfing other countries and yeah what do you see as some of the what's the best case realistic outcome well you know imagine at a bus stop there's uh, a lady that's beating getting beat up by a hoodlum and people on the side say, why don't you negotiate it? <laughs> I mean, what kind of negotiation? The hoodlum has been lying. He made fools of, you know, some politicians. Uh, the president of France, you know, came uh, two weeks ago to Moscow. Uh, he was treated as a boy. And he left saying, oh, we've come to an agreement and, you know, we're, you know, there, there won't be an invasion. And then before his plane landed, you know, the Russians said, no, 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 we didn't say anything of the sort. They lie. This invasion was carefully planned for months. There was no question that it would occur. And the question is, how do you negotiate with, you know, cynical liars who can kill kids, their own kids? There's, there's 5,000 Russian soldiers that have been killed in five days. For what reason? 
This is a great tragedy for the Russian people. Yes, yes, it is. It's a great cra tragedy for them too. And there are many Russians that are that are very unhappy with this aggression from Russia into Ukraine. It's very sad what's happening. But I, I think one thing that it's ha a good effect that it's having it's it's concentrating the attentions of the world on something that's been going on for some time um, that we've too many people have decided to ignore in favor of concentrating on very really silly things. And I'm thinking right now in America on our on the politics of woke and and all these silly sort of cultural, not just silly, but damaging cultural things that we chase uh, as a people. Um, do you think that this uh, terrible conflict in, in, in the Ukraine will help to focus people's attention on what's important? I hope so. You know, it works for me. We, we begin uh, Great Lent today. Uh, the Eastern Rites begin on Monday. And, you know, it, this, this is going to be a special Lent for me. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the sacrifice and deprivations of the, the, the men on the front. Uh, I'm thinking of the people being bombed in cities. I'm thinking of the hundreds of thousands of people that today are on the road. Families, you know, mothers with breastfeeding their children. And they're in this freezing cold standing for, you know, 24 hours trying to get to the, you know, cross the border. We, we have many things that we should value. America is a great country. It has many weaknesses. One problem is that, you know, a lot of faithful uh, conservative Catholics think Putin is a defender of traditional values, not realizing that Russia has the highest abortion rate in the world, one of the highest alcoholism, suicide, divorce rates in the world. It's a thoroughly corrupt country. And this guy has been power for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And people say this guy is a defender of traditional values. He's a killer. Mm -hmm. He's a sociopath. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to Cardinal Sara uh, last week, and he's, you know, a very holy man. And he said, I think Putin defends traditional values. And I said, your eminence. We were having coffee together and, you know, standing up. And, you know, I almost dropped my cup. And that is what disinformation does. Mm -hmm. And that is what you, what you are doing, why it is so important. Archbishop, what can our listeners do besides joining our prayers to all the prayers of the people across the world who are praying for the end of this, for the end of suffering in Ukraine, and even for the end of suffering of the, the Russians, the poor Russian soldiers who are being thrown into this fray? Um, what else can we do? What would you recommend so, to us? I would. I, let's not skip over that so quickly. What else with prayer? Prayer <laughs> moves mountains. Uh, the Soviet Union fell apart without a war. Fifteen countries came out of it. Our churches became free. My church, our Ukrainian Catholic Church, became free after for being for 43 years the biggest illegal church in the world. And uh, that was through prayer. That was through grace. That's right. That was a miracle. It was the act of God. So pray yes. and pray and pray. A second, information. Everything we were saying about, there's so much disinformation. Putin is is attacking Ukraine because Ukraine has the virus of democracy. <laughs> it has the virus of freedom. It has the virus of transparency. Not in a perfect state. Ukraine has its own problems. But the U.S. also has many problems in its political system. But he doesn't want any of it in his autocratic, kleptocratic oligarchy. Where, where a few people control everything and, uh, you know, the rest of the population must toe the line. And the third thing is to uh, help in the humanitarian crisis. There's going to be millions of people that are going to be homeless. Millions. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're on the move. And it's the winter. And uh, they need our help. That's right. That's a good wake-up call for us. It's... Um It's, it's going to be a tremendous, even, even if everything stops today, on this very day, uh, just recovering from what's been going on, the terrible devastation There's in the Ukraine will be enormous. Billions of dollars of infrastructure that have been destroyed. Uh, you know, electric stations, uh, uh, gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines, schools, hospitals, kindergartens, mm -hmm. roads, bridges, high-rise apartment buildings. It's incredible. You know, how quickly with with a demonic intention, how we can destroy, how we can kill and how long it takes to give life, to heal 
and to build. Well, Archbishop, I can't thank you enough for putting this all uh, out, just laying it out for us in such a way that uh, really helps us understand and helps us uh, especially understand how important our prayers are and how important the defense of the Ukraine is to, to the world in general, not just to Ukrainians, but to all of us. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. God bless you and all, all the listeners, and I'm glad glad to help in the next days and weeks to come because this is far from over. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my co-hostesses, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire, to discuss a tragic story out of D.C. Maureen, why don't you tell us how it all how it all played out and what it all means? Well, it, images came to light of five nearly full-term aborted babies that had been surrendered to the Washington, D.C. Police Department. And the babies in the photograph reportedly came out with the medical waste from a late-term abortion clinic in D.C. Nobody quite knows what the story is surrounding how they came into the possession of police, but the photographs themselves are unsettling in the extreme. They're absolutely just heartbreaking. I mean, there are so many questions surrounding this, but one is that the, the photographs raise the question of how these babies were aborted and were they legal abortions or were they more Gosnell style? And our listeners might remember the horrid story of late-term abortionist Dr. Kermit Gosnell in Philadelphia, who was really committing infanticide, and he was actually eventually convicted of murder in some of those cases. But the the images that emerged in D.C. are uh, reminiscent of what we saw coming out of the abortion clinic in Philadelphia with Dr. Kermit Gosnell. So similarly, the Washington, D.C. police seem to be kind of looking the other way, just like officials in Philadelphia looked the other way for 17 years. And that's why Dr. Gosnell got away with all his grisly and ghastly practices for so long, because officials look the other way. So the question now in D.C. is, are they really going to investigate because it seems that they're not. They said they're not going to do autopsies on the body, but it's just, it's a tragic story, but it, it, it's raising a lot of questions because on the one hand, were these just simply legal abortions or were they, you know, infanticide? Honestly, either way, it's almost irrelevant because we in the pro-life movement know there's not much difference between the few inches of the birth canal, what happens inside the womb or moments after birth. So raises a lot of questions and gives us a lot to think about and pray for. And, you know, I think if in fact these were, you know, going to the legality question, if these were legal abortions, you would think that to sort of put the controversy to rest, they would just perform a simple autopsy and say, yep, see, these were legal. So I think it sort of adds to the suspicion that the coroner is refusing to do an autopsy and that now they're talking about just incinerating the bodies. And so sort of reeks of a cover-up, but as you point out, we don't know the facts but what we do know is that this is yet another horribly garish reminder of how extreme our abortion laws are in this country. And, you know, I will say that, for example, my college-age niece, she texted me the other day. She saw the story on Instagram as a news story, and she was totally disturbed. And I think people are every day more waking up to the fact that we are one of a handful of countries left in the world that allow late-term abortions on fully viable six, seven-pound babies. And that, you know, whether it's done, quote-unquote, legally or not, 
it's horribly violent. Important time for us to reflect on a con- as a country um, on the fact that this is happening legally and I'm sure illegally right here under our noses. And it hearkens the William Wilberforce quote that I saw posted somewhere on social media in connection with this story about, I can't remember exactly how the quote goes, but basically he says, you know, you can look, but you can't say you haven't seen. In other words, like it, it's getting harder and harder to, to look at the truth and the reality of it. And then still act like you don't know what's really going on. I think people know now and, and social media and, and this horrible story, which is hard to cover up or, you know, snuff away with because of social media. It's um, getting harder and harder for people to deny the truth of the violent, the violent horror that late term abortion is in this country. One very important thing that we have to understand about late term abortion is, is that there is never any medical reason to abort a baby in the last trimester. And that immediately makes people say, no, no, that can't be true because, you know, you always hear about abortion as a very sad choice that sometimes has to be done late in the, you know, to save the mother's life. Well, the actual medical facts behind all this is that, number one, there's two reasons that are proposed for late-term abortion. One of them is fetal disability, like a very bad fetal disability. Well, that is simply eugenics. You are saying, well, you're a, you're a fully formed little girl or a fully formed little boy inside mom, but you have a defect and you can't be allowed to live. So whether this is happening inside or outside, it's still a eugenic decision to say this disabled person cannot be allowed to live. It's it's too much of a burden on him or her and too much of a burden on society and on the parents. You know, and this is a terrible reflection of how we treat people with disabilities. And if you ask a person with severe disabilities, are you glad you're alive? They will say yes. They will they'll they very much have the same appreciation of their lives as we all do. I mean, all of us experience our lives as as full of blessings but also full of burdens, and that's how disabled people appreciate their lives as well. So that's number one. Disability should never be a reason to to kill a child before or after birth. Number two, people think that it's um, the women, the mother uh, is in terrible danger and the, and the pregnancy has to be ended and the only way to do that is an abortion. Well, that's not also not true because to deliver a live baby is easier on the mother than to perform an abortion, which is a very complicated procedure that can take several days that is very painful and very drawn out, while if you want to deliver a baby very quickly, it can take just a few minutes in a C-section. So those babies who are delivered instead of being eliminated can uh, take their chances in the ICU. Our country is very good about taking care of premature babies. We spend enormous amounts of money taking really good care of them in ICUs across the country. And if the parents can't welcome that baby into their home, I know that there are many, many loving families that would like to do that through adoption. And after Dobbs, if Dobbs, in fact, takes down Roe v. Wade in the next couple months, we already know there are many states who have already signed up, signed it into law that they will be doing abortion legally right through the 42nd week of pregnancy. When Congress last considered a bill uh, to ban partial birth abortion, there was all kinds of testimony from abortion doctors themselves who admitted that the vast majority of late-term abortions sadly are done on healthy mothers carrying healthy babies, just women who simply sort of waited too long for various reasons. So, you know, in thinking about this story, I kept thinking about this question of geography, and it's a striking coincidence that these babies were recovered on Capitol Hill in the shadow of the Supreme Court, which is currently considering whether or not to overturn Roe versus Wade, which allows abortions into the third trimester, of course, through the broadly defined health exception. Um, the abortion clinic where these babies allegedly were killed is literally five blocks from the White House, you know, inhabited by a president who supports late term abortion on demand. And wait, and and calls himself a practicing Catholic who carries a rosary around. But go ahead. Which is just very, very hard to reconcile. Mm -hmm. Five blocks in the other direction from this abortion clinic is a hospital that has a neonatal intensive care unit. And Washington, D.C. has a safe haven law, which says that anybody can drop off a newborn, no questions asked. And D.C. law actually encourages this. They say instead of abandoning a baby or the word, I'm just looking for the word, they say instead of abandoning or discarding a newborn, that babies can be 
just left no questions asked under the safe haven law. And of course, just as Amy Coney Barrett raised this issue of safe haven laws within the legal context of arguments surrounding uh, the burdens of unwanted parenthood. But any baby accidentally delivered alive could be dropped at the hospital and adopted, like you said, by one of two million couples waiting to adopt a baby. So, you know, it's just tragedy around, but there's so much also irony and, you know, it's like a bizarre coincidence or providential that, that this is happening all in the nation's capital when the nation is reconsidering its abortion law in the Dobbs case. You know, Maureen, I know you've pointed this out in many articles you've written. The other side, the pro-abortion side, likes to say, oh, it's such a tiny fraction of heartbreaking cases that are, you know, these late-term abortions. But, you know, you ran the numbers and you were like, if there's, you know, X number of abortions performed every year and, you know, only... A few, you know, a small percentage of those are late term. It's still more than 10,000 of these types of abortions every year. Yeah. That is an, a staggering number yeah. of babies being executed in a very violent fashion. Babies that could live outside the womb and, as you point out, be placed in the loving arms of families that would love to give those babies, including the babies who are disabled, a chance at life. And, you know, to the, the question of disability that you talked about, Gracie, it's important to note there's a growing number of studies coming out showing that these prenatal diagnoses are wrong almost all the time. In fact, I think the latest study I saw said that something like 80% of prenatal diagnoses of a fetal abnormality or disability are just flat wrong. And then, you know, layer on top of that, the increasing number of stories of women who did choose to bring a baby to term and bring that baby into the world, having been told the baby would either not make it to birth or maybe live a few hours or a few days, who either have a perfectly healthy baby because the diagnosis was wrong, or the baby is still thriving, you know, at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old and defying the odds. And it all really shows the limitations of science. Uh, you know, we live in this era of science is really hard science, but the limitations of science when it comes to uh, guiding us on these complex moral questions. And the science is, just seems to be flat wrong and should not be what women are listening to when they're, you know, dealing with these difficult and scary situations. So the whole, the whole industry is terribly fraught. And, you know, again, the horror of this story is a reminder of how extreme the pro-abortion side is. The party, the abortion lobby, and our own president um, who supports this and has said he'll go to the mattresses to keep this legal for any reason on taxpayer dime. Yeah, and, and the truth is that Democrats are not, the Democratic Party is not in, 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 in lockstep with their own constituency. Democrat vote, Democratic voters are, in general, by high percentages, they're, they're totally fine with limiting abortion, even when they call themselves pro-choice, to limiting abortion to at most 12 weeks, to make us, to put us on par with other countries, which we consider more liberal countries in Europe, for instance. Yeah, so I don't, I don't understand why the Democrats have allowed themselves to be captured by these radical pro-abortion, smaller portions of their, of their constituency. Although it's happening everywhere, right? Like everywhere you look, small vocal minorities um, who are ideologic and radical are, are, are managing to change the way all of us have to live. Because, you know, they're so vocal and, and so powerful and there's, they, they have a lot of big money interest behind them. And it's not just abortion, it's other things too, of course, that all of us are experiencing out there in the world. Maureen, I wonder, I find something confusing, confusing about this whole thing, and I'm sure our listeners do too. We all agree that tearing a baby apart, you know, at 34 weeks is, is a heinous act. If the whether the mother needs to deliver the baby, whether the baby's disabled or not. What would, but, but it's legal. It's legal in D.C. to abort right up until the day you, you give birth, naturally. Um, what would make these abortions illegal? What would, what would it be about the babies that the, that, that the coroner could discover on autopsy that would make these abortions illegal and the abortionist a lawbreaker? So if the baby was partially delivered alive or fully delivered alive, that baby is a newborn infant and has all the protections of the law that you or I have. So the question really is one of location where the baby died, which this is an odd criteria for determining whether something is legal or murder, just the place of death. 
you know, I don't, yes, I don't know yes. any other areas of the law mm-hmm. where that's, that's you true. know, how we make that judgment. But, and, you know, not to get too much into the grisly details, but the National Abortion Federation, the standard procedure they recommend is to use a feticide before inducing labor in a late-term abortion. So they make sure to induce what they refer to as fetal demise before beginning to induce labor. And what these sort of shady late-term abortionists tend to do, number one, injecting the feticide into the fetal cardiac uh, cavity, as they say it, uh, requires a lot of skill. And a lot of these late-term abortion doctors are shoddy. I mean, they're really back-alley abortions or abortionists. They're, you know, as you know, Gracie, most people in the medical profession do not want to become abortionists. It's sort of the, you know, losers of the industry that fall into this. But, That's true. But it, so they, they appear as if they may be engaging in sort of a quick induction of labor without utilizing the more technically difficult feticide. So to answer that question, and and I'm just going to say one final thing, the media coverage, the hypocrisy in the media coverage of this story is so striking to me because when we, sometimes when images are so hard to look at, that's why we feel compelled to look at them. And when you look at the coverage of the war crimes in Ukraine, we have seen splashed across the front pages of newspapers, actual photographs of murdered Ukrainian civilians. You know, newspapers like the Washington Post are running these with disclaimers saying, you know, we are printing graphic photos, you know, including, you know, very graphic images. But of course, when it comes to a baby that came out with the medical waste from an abortion clinic, they don't even cover it or they barely cover it at all. So the hypocrisy there is, um, you know, is really just stunning. So these are sad things to to think about in Holy Week, at the end of Holy Week. And and as we look forward to the resurrection, to Resurrection Sunday, uh, when hope shines again and the light breaks out again, um, I think we can all of us join together in praying that that we will see that same kind of coming back to life of of American, of, of Americans' hearts um, full of sympathy for the unborn, so that these things become unthinkable because they ought to be unthinkable. So happy Easter, um, Ashley and Maureen, and all our listeners. And I hope that the the good Lord graces your heart uh, on Sunday with with the joy of the resurrection. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. It's a dialogue that happened on the night Jesus triumphantly rose from the dead. It's a colloquy that reveals Jesus' true priorities, why he entered the world, why he suffered, died, and rose. He did it all to impart divine mercy. That's why, since 2000, this Sunday, the exclamation point of the Easter octave is called Divine Mercy Sunday, because it's meant to help us focus on and enter far more deeply into that great mystery and gift. It's a gift ever actual. I'm not sure whether you've had the chance to see Mark Wahlberg's new movie called Father Stew, which focuses on the inspiring true story of Father Stuart Long, a priest of the Diocese of Helena, Montana, who died in 2014 of a debilitating disease after only six and a half years as a priest. He is an extraordinary icon and ambassador of divine mercy. He was the son of nominally Protestant parents, a football player, wrestler, Golden Gloves championship boxer, an English major, who ended up moving to Hollywood in search of movie stardom, only to work as a bartender, bouncer, and security guard. This fun-loving, strong, self-confident, kind, big boy had his life upended in a life-threatening motorcycle accident at the age of 30. When he recovered, he was convinced that his life had been saved for a reason. He started to search for that reason desire to wed his live-in girlfriend, Cindy, who would only marry in the Catholic Church, led him to enroll in class to become a Catholic. As he was being baptized at the Easter Vigil in 1994, he felt God calling him to become a priest. He acted on that call, eventually entered seminary and was ordained a transitional deacon a dozen years later at 42. 
Around that time, he started to experience various physical difficulties, which were eventually diagnosed as inclusion body myositis, a progressive disease that eventually takes away one's control over one's muscle, such that one is practically paralyzed and can even lose the ability to breathe. Bishop George Thomas of Helena, however, after much prayer, decided to ordain Stu a priest anyway. Convinced in prayer that the Lord wanted Stu to be an icon of Christ the suffering servant and show the redemptive power of Christian suffering. Father Stu's unlikely calling manifests the power of God's mercy in taking sinners and making them an ambassador of his mercy. In the movie, when Stu was being interviewed for the seminary, he mentions God's calling Saints Paul, Augustine, and Francis of Assisi to prove that sometimes God's most effective ambassadors of his merciful love are those whose being and history exude it. He preaches three times in the movie, in a talk at prison, in a reflection as a seminarian at Mass, and at his ordination, and each time describes that God in his mercy cares for each one of us. And after he enters the nursing home where he spent the last three years of his priesthood, we see how his principal ministry was anointing the sick and hearing the confessions of his fellow residents, staff, and people from all over Greater Helena, who at 8.30 each morning would start to form a long line stretching even outside the front door. They found in Father Stu someone whom they knew could understand their moral failings, as well as someone who could give encouragement, advice, and surgical penances to overcome those failings in cooperation with God's grace. Father Stu's whole life became a testimony to God's mercy, and now, thanks to the new movie, his story will be known far beyond Montana. The mercy of God is supposed to have just as powerful an impact in our life as it did in Stuart Long's. We're called to recognize our need for God's mercy, come to receive it, conform our life to it, and according to our state in life, share it. As we'll hear in the Sunday's Gospel, Jesus on Easter Sunday evening walked through the closed doors of the upper room where the apostles were huddling together out of fear and said to them twice, Peace be with you. Jesus had come down from heaven to earth and given his life to give us a special kind of peace, one the world can't give or rob. The peace Jesus leaves and gives is not the mere absence of war or conflict, but the definitive peace treaty with God through the forgiveness of sins. So the risen Jesus, wasting absolutely no time to set the next stage's peace plan in motion, on the night he rose from the dead, divinely empowered the apostles as his peacemakers to bring that gift and the joy to which it leads to the ends of the earth. It's important that we pay close attention to the various steps Jesus took so that we can understand better the divine foundation of the sacrament of his mercy and likewise better explain it to others. Jesus began by saying to the apostles, Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. We know that the Father had sent Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Jesus was sending his apostles to continue that saving mission of mercy. Since we know that God alone can forgive sins against him, Jesus needed to impart to the apostles divine power. So he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He gave them God the Holy Spirit so that they might forgive sins in God's name. Just as we hear every time the priest pronounces those beautiful words of absolution, God the Father of mercy through the death and resurrection of his Son has sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus did something that refers to the essential structure of the sacrament of reconciliation. He declared, those whose sins you forgive are forgiven, those whose sins you retain are retained. Since Jesus didn't give the apostles the capacity to read hearts and souls, the only way they and their successors and priestly collaborators would be able to know which sins to forgive or to retain would be if people told them. And that's what happens in the sacrament of confession. It's so fitting that Jesus established the sacrament of his mercy on Easter Sunday evening because he wanted to link the joy of his resurrection to the joy of forgiveness. He had pointed to the connection between the two when he gave his unforgettable parable of the prodigal son. When the lost son returns to the father to give his prepared words of repentance, the father erupts with joy, saying, My son was dead and has been brought to life again. This parable, which is about what happens in the sacrament of penance, points to the truth that every reconciliation is a resurrection. In every good confession, a son or daughter who is dead through sin comes to life again, healed of sins, both mortal and venial, and made fully alive once more in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so fitting that the Easter octave concludes with Divine Mercy Sunday. 
In the great jubilee of the redemption in the year 2000, St. John Paul II established this feast for the Sunday after Easter so that all of us could thank God for the gift of his merciful love that led him to stop at nothing in order to save us from our sins and from the death to which sins lead. St. John Paul announced the establishment of this feast during the canonization of St. Faustina Kowalska, the humble Polish sister to whom, in a series of profound mystical experiences during the 1930s, Jesus had revealed the depth of his merciful love for the human race and his desire for all people to recognize our need for his mercy, trust in it, come to receive it, and share it with others. Jesus' words to St. Faustina, he asked her as his secretary to write down five ways by which he wanted us to grow in appreciation of and transformation through divine mercy. First is to stop each day at 3 p.m. when Christ breathed his last on Calvary to, his, to implore his mercy and bring him our prayers. Second, to venerate him in the chaplet, in the image of divine mercy by which he, risen from the dead, blesses us and asks us to trust in him. Third, to pray the chaplet of divine mercy, offering God the Father, Jesus in the Eucharist, and begging him on account of his son's passion for mercy on the whole world. Fourth, to pray a novena, starting from Good Friday, in which we bring to Jesus various groups of people in need of his mercy. And lastly, to celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday, this Sunday, when we punctuate the end of the octave of Easter by pondering Jesus' establishing the sacrament of mercy on Easter night, so that we could enter more fully into his resurrection. Each of these five nourishes our gratitude for divine mercy, deepens our recognition of our need for it, spurs us to come get it, and helps us to learn how to share it, passing on to others the richness of the mercy we have first received. As you listen to these words, I'll be in Rome to celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday with Pope Francis, together with my fellow papally appointed missionaries of mercy from across the globe. Pope Francis has sought throughout his papacy to make God's mercy real and accessible. He's reminded us so many times that God never tires of forgiving us, and he's begged us never to tire of receiving what God never tires to give. He's also emphasized how God's greatest joy is forgiving, because as Jesus taught us, Heaven rejoices more over one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous people who never needed to repent. Our receiving God's mercy not only fills us with joy, but fills heaven with joy. This is what happened in the life of Father Stu and so many others he was able to reconcile to God through his priestly work. So we prepare this Sunday to offer to the Father his only beloved Son's body, blood, soul, and divinity and atonement for our sin and those of the whole world. So we prepare, in other words, to unite ourselves to Jesus' prayer on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. We thank him for his mercy that endures forever and ask his mercy on us and on the whole world. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 